And we're going to be in John again today. We're continuing on through the Upper Room Discourse, uh, chapters 13 to 17. Hey, baby, go ahead. <laughs> um, if you have a copy of our John Scripture Journal, go ahead and grab that, or a Bible, grab that as well. If you don't have one of those and would like one, there's some of both back there on the resource table. Feel free to grab that, and if you don't have one, please keep it. Uh, we'll start with our text today, which is John 16, verses 4 through 15. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so what we have today is very much a part two of last week's text, um, so much so that we started in verse four, which uh, for most of you in your Bibles might be right like in between headers, which if you recall, those were added much later anyway. When Jesus was talking, he didn't stop and say, here's the paragraph that I'm about to go into, and, and this is what it means. So um, what he did and what we did last week, Jesus introduced the topic of persecution, and he reiterated the importance of endurance. Now in this week, he explains how the Holy Spirit will aid in that, in that endurance. I think there's a few lines in this passage in particular that get a lot of airtime in modern Christian circles. And that's in order to proclaim that the Holy Spirit's role is somehow to uncover all conceivable truths and to lay things out perfectly for us, whether that has to do with doctrine or prophecy or how long to put your kids in time out. And I think if you look at these lines at face value, that, that might almost seem plausible. Listen to this. I've said these things so you'll remember that I told them to you. When the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world. He will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, this obviously means there should be no difficulty interpreting Scripture at all. Not only that, but no Christian will ever have a view that's different from yours, unless, of course, it's heresy, in which case that person's not a Christian at all, right? I think, based on some of our church backgrounds, that can either pick at some deep wounds or sound very laughable that anyone would ever claim to have that level of knowledge. But either way, that's what I want to examine today with our passage. And it's the fact that the Holy Spirit is not here to give us infinite wisdom, but to help us love God and love others well. 
Which means that neither the Bible nor the Holy Spirit will directly answer the question, how long do I put my kids in timeout? But through a life lived based on the teachings and practices of Jesus, our instinct will naturally be more in line with God's character, which helps in those situations. So I want to share my working thesis on this text and then unpack it as we go. This is the claim that I'm offering today. The Holy Spirit's work is never flawed, but we are imperfect vessels for this help. So I'll say that again. Uh, We'll explain a little bit and then dive into the text. The Holy Spirit's work is never flawed, but we are imperfect vessels for that help. What I mean is that when Scripture says the Spirit lives and works in us and through us, that it is not a sliver of the Spirit, some wisp of divine presence or a shadow or pale copy of God's character, but the actual God of heaven, working in a way that if we cooperate, will increasingly bring us to a fuller knowledge and picture of Jesus. However, we don't start this journey perfect, nor do we at some point along the way, this side of eternity, attain perfection, right? We continue ever onward and hopefully upward, but our baggage, flaws, and cracks do not stop presenting themselves. Any fault or failure in our grasp of God's truth, however, is not due to our being given some inadequate portion of the Spirit, but instead to the broken personal lens through which we view and learn from God's revelation to humanity. In other words, When we observe, interpret, and apply Scripture to our lives, the weak link is going to be us, not God. But more importantly, the Holy Spirit's role in our journey of following Jesus is not to enlighten us as to the mysteries of the universe, but to remind us of the truth of God made tangible in Jesus, which in turn evokes whole life worship. If you recall, back in November, Weston actually talked a lot about this. He noted that the Holy Spirit equips us for this whole life worship. He teaches and reminds us of the truth. Obedience to the Spirit is obedience to Jesus and thus to the Father. So what is not portrayed in that passage back in November, nor in this passage, is the notion that the Holy Spirit will magically illuminate us as to every perceivable truth in the universe— No, it is the truth that Jesus talked about, both right here in this discourse and in his lifetime. The kingdom of God, that is very different from the way of life known in the world. That's that's what the Spirit is teaching. And we know that this is important because it was repeated by Jesus. Weston read this in John 14. We're reading it again today in John 16. And I think if you're ever looking for something to highlight in your Bible, repeated phrases are a great place to start. So let's get into the text and see if we can back up that claim that I made. We'll start with verse 4. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. You'll notice this verse continues a thought that Jesus gave his disciples already. This was from last week in verse 1 of chapter 16. There's a repeated notion of the hour or an hour coming throughout this gospel, and it's suddenly taken a new perspective. So Jesus' hour has arrived at this point, and although it will look like death and defeat in every way, 
it will end in victory brought about by the power of God because of faithful endurance. Again, remember how we closed out last week's text. Now, Jesus tells the disciples, a new hour is coming, an hour for each of them when these things will take place. What are these things? We look at verses 2 and 3. That's being kicked out of synagogues, being killed for their faith, completely and utterly persecuted in every physical and relational sense. And Jesus said that this will happen for a reason. He told them this for a reason. What is that reason? It's to keep them from falling away. He's calling his disciples to faithful endurance. But being a good teacher, Jesus never calls his disciples to do something he wouldn't do himself. Verses 5 and 6. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So if you hold the view that I mentioned earlier, that the Spirit gives us full truth with no room for variation, how do we feel about textual difficulties? Specifically, Jesus' statement right here, none of you ask me where are you going, when literally two people have asked him that in this discourse. In chapter 13, Jesus says he's going to be glorified, and then he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. To which Peter immediately responds, Lord, where are you going? Then again, in chapter 14, Jesus says he's going to the Father to prepare a place for them. And then he'll come back to take them to himself. He even says they know the way to where he is going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? So that's, that's two instances in the same passage, of course, which we call the upper room discourse, of Jesus saying, I'm going somewhere. And the disciples responding, where are you going? Then in chapter 16, Jesus says, none of you asked me, where are you going? So, so what do we have here? Is Jesus being petty? Did John or, or some later editor or copier of John's gospel account make a mistake? No, I, I don't think that's the direction we should lean, especially when there are more likely options to examine. For instance, some think that this five-chapter block, 13 to 17, is not one continuous discourse, but actually a few different ones, which could perfectly explain Jesus' statement here. Now none of you ask where I'm going. Others think it has to do with Jesus' word now in the beginning of the sentence, as in now I'm going and now in this moment none of you ask me, which would mean, sure, you, you've asked before, but you haven't asked right now. Another well-received option is to look instead at the disciples' motives or their interests in the previous two questions. Meaning, before this, they've asked, but they're not asking in reference to Jesus' actual destination, but out of their own interest for the adverse effect that his departure will have on them. Then, when Jesus spoke about the persecution that they're about to face, he makes the comment again to bring up the fact that despite voicing similar words, none of them had truly inquired as to the destination of Christ. D.A. Carson makes a little metaphor. He likens this to a child who repeatedly asks his father why he has to leave for work in the morning. But the disciples asking this in this view, have questioned Jesus less because of an interest in where daddy works and more an interest in just continuing to play dinosaurs with him. 
So Carson says, by this time in the narrative, the disciples have been asking several questions of this sort, but they've not really asked thoughtful questions about where Jesus is going. They're just self-absorbed in their own loss. And I think all this is important because this is a passage that receives scrutiny. And when we're faced with multiple views in a text, I think those views should also be considered seriously. However, the deciding factor for me is in the heart of the text. I think any view that discards what seems to be the most important point of this passage is misguided. Jesus is leaving. He will no longer be there to shield his disciples from the persecution that they're about to face. He wants to encourage them toward faith and endurance. Not only that, but he notices they're filled with sorrow. That's why he's speaking so strongly here of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, so what's going on in these verses? When Jesus goes away, which we know to mean ascend to the Father, his disciples will receive the Helper. And we see that at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends on them. The Spirit is going to convict the world. I think that's another general term that most can mentally understand. But in what way exactly? Concerning sin? This one's also not really a mental or theological leap. But concerning righteousness? Concerning judgment? At the risk of spending way too much time on textual difficulties, I want to point out that these lines also have several views as well. But of all of these views, the most important distinction, I think, that exists, and several others much smarter than me, is between the ideas, the idea of convicting and condemning. These are two different words with different meanings, but we blend those concepts a lot. And I think we do that to our detriment. The Spirit convicts, or rather exposes, the world's brokenness. And He does so in these ways. Concerning sin, the Spirit of God, through those who live and act like Jesus, remember those dual themes of love and sacrifice that have been on display all through this passage so far, that Spirit will bring to light the sin of non-belief and thus spur on faith from those in the world. Concerning righteousness, the Spirit will illuminate the inadequate, misunderstood, legalistic view of righteousness shown by the world, even if in a religious sense. You recall that most of Jesus' opponents were the religious elite, so these were folks that would uphold Sabbath restrictions and yet condemn the healing of a man's body. Jesus says he's going to be with the Father, and in his place, the Spirit's continual righteousness will be shown through his disciples. That righteousness, though, is apparently not Bible-thumping, outspoken condemnation, but God's righteousness, as shown by Jesus, who was humble among everyone he encountered, except those who thought themselves to be God's judges over others. And then, concerning judgment... This is continuing Jesus' dichotomy of the world and the kingdom of God. And here he reaches a culmination. 
The king of the kingdom is about to be glorified and will one day return to claim all that is his. In the same moment, the prince of the world, the devil, Satan, the accuser, the source of evil, is about to be condemned and will receive judgment. Judgment due to what? Well, the sin of non-belief, the twisted self-righteousness, and the unjust judgment that would attempt to slay the king. So, I think using that view of what's going on helps to clear up a little bit of what's happening here, but I do think there's one more thought that I want to share before we move on, which is this. I think we should keep in mind the subject and direct object of the conviction in this passage. The Spirit convicts or exposes the world. We should let God be God, keeping in mind the speck of dust and plank of wood parable. We'll look at our last paragraph here. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That first sentence... That first sentence is big. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's the disciples' emotional state that still occludes them from being able to understand everything Jesus has to say in this moment. So his repeated promise is for further clarity. And that clarity is, is to his truth, the truth of the Father. And that's going to happen when the Spirit comes. I think once again... When we consider the context, the context right here in this passage, what we talked about last week, and the larger context of this upper room discourse, this truth seems to speak more to a greater understanding of what Jesus has already proclaimed, rather than some new and unique expression of faith. The Father gave all to Jesus, and he gave all to the Spirit to continually declare one truth, one eternal message of truth. Creation has a king, and we are invited to recognize our way of living as rebellious and thus turn and follow the king. If you recall from last week's text, this message will be received by some and rejected by others. But there's a particular intimacy on display here, I think that further proves the, the same truth idea. All that the Father has belongs to Jesus. All that Jesus has will be declared through the Spirit. So the truth is coming from one source. And I think that's the point Jesus is making in all of this. There's, there's, the, there's the prompt towards steadfast encouragement. And that stems from our belief in the oneness of the Trinity. Let me explain what I mean a little bit. What we have as believers is truth illuminated by the Spirit, and that truth is the truth of God. But what this does not entail, right, is a full understanding of all the complex mysteries of the universe. I think like Job, if we were given a glimpse into the workings of God, we too would declare, I have heard of you. But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. No, instead, our help 
Our help from the Spirit is in our daily devotion, our devotion to God and a deeper understanding of a life that looks like Jesus. The point of following Jesus, then, isn't just getting to heaven or telling others that they're not. It's about a unity with God, both here and, yes, in eternity, and a personal life that is modeled after the love of God who came in human form. And I think what drives this home even further is a look at the letter or the poem we call 1 John. John is traditionally considered the author of this gospel account. That same God, God, that same John wrote three letters to small churches, which are also included in the New Testament. And a a quick read of his account of Jesus's words right here in the upper room discourse, followed by a reading of John's letters to those churches, makes Jesus's themes jump off the page. For instance, John writes his second and third letters to address people who are teaching and living counter to the truth that Jesus spoke of right here in the upper room. And this means there are going to be those who deceive, who claim the name of Christ, but live like the rest of the world, the broken, self-centered cosmos. And when we encounter these people, John says, don't give them support. His first letter, 1 John, is spent unpacking Jesus' words from right here in this discourse. Just listen to some of this beautiful language. There's the poetry of John highlighting the truth of Jesus. And as I read through some of these lines from 1 John, keep in mind Jesus' words about the Spirit. He'll guide you into truth. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, I maintain that God is perfect and we are not, right? The Holy Spirit's work is never flawed, but we are imperfect vessels for this help. We are the weak link. Jesus, in this discourse that we've been studying through, laced his words with encouragement for his disciples in the face of persecution that was very near to them. John later poured encouragement into the ink of letters that went to churches in the face of false teaching. And then, later, on the island of Patmos, Jesus would speak through John once again to persecuted, misguided Christians by way of what we call the Revelation. 
In every instance, the presence of the Spirit is mentioned, but not for some intellectual advantage. Rather, the Spirit's presence is to ground us in the truth of what Jesus already said. It's to make us better at being like Him. And that is, that's done through what? Love, humility, sacrifice. These themes have been a drumbeat through the upper room discourse. John repeats them in his letters. It is what marked Jesus, and it is what should mark us. But those things aren't easy, and that's why we have the Spirit. So, my suggestion, after all that, is this. We should make it our goal to be the type of person through whom the Holy Spirit can accurately display the ancient truths of Jesus, which is what all these texts today point at. Through our daily lives, our rhythms, our practices, which we talk about often, our priorities, the ways we love and serve others, we're giving opportunity for the Spirit to guide us further into the truth of Jesus, which will be a firm foundation when troubles of the world come knocking, which they will. This isn't anything new. It's not having the exact answer to every conceivable theological question. It's just a firmer grasp on the basic truths about Jesus and a willingness to allow others who operate with the same spirit to help make sense of these difficult things. So it doesn't mean creating faith. It just means getting better at it. And that's through practice. An early uh, 19th century scholar, G.K. Chesterton, speaking about the construction of his faith after much research and contemplation, said this, I did, like all other solemn little boys, try to be in advance of the age. Like them, I tried to be some 10 minutes in advance of the truth, and I found that I was 1,800 years behind it. I did strain my voice with a painfully juvenile exaggeration in uttering my truths, and I was punished in the fittest and funniest way. For I have kept my truths, but I have discovered not that they were not truths, but simply that they were not mine. In other words, Chesterton set out to find some original, deep, true expression of Christian faith. And what he ended up with was Orthodox Christianity. Truth spoken by Jesus and lived out as best they could manage by his disciples through the ages. So that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit reminds us of Jesus' words, the words that he's already spoken. And he does so perfectly. My parting thought would be this. Let's not make God or Scripture some object to be unpacked and figured out. Studied, yes. Contemplated, of course. Researched, translated, obviously. But not for personal knowledge. Instead, let's allow God and Scripture to unpack and figure out our own lives. Let the Spirit expose our imperfections, and in doing so, remove them one by one until all that remains of us is a picture of Jesus. I think that's what Jesus is getting at with his introduction of the Spirit, especially in the face of persecution, not just in the easy life, not just in the days when everything goes well, but reliance on the Spirit no matter what. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for the word that Jesus gave us about the spirit working in us and helping us. God, we pray that as you minister to us and through us, that we would continually seek above all else to live a life that looks more like Christ. That we would have Christ as our goal above everything. And in doing so, that the rest of our lives would begin to fall in line with your character. Help us if it is persecution we are facing. And help us as a community, if that is the case, to rally around each other. But if what we are facing is just the monotony of daily life, Lord, help us in our devotion there as well. Help us to be your church. Thank you for the covenant that we are a part of. Thank you for the spirit that you have put in us, your spirit. Not some small manifestation of it, but your spirit. And allow us every day as we pursue Jesus to let our sins and our imperfections be exposed by that spirit. Allow us to become better pictures of Christ than we were the day before. In, do, in doing so, to just promote humility, love, and sacrifice that was best shown by you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.